Hello and welcome to the second of our podcasts where I'm coming to you from Iowa in the United States of America where my um, interviewee today is Sarah Bond from the University of Iowa. Hi, good afternoon. And today um, we're going to be talking about labour and industry in the ancient world. So, Sarah, if we can start off by discussing the idea of the status of different jobs in the ancient world. In the modern world, we, or a lot of us, will have a rough sense of the status within society that we think is attached to particular professions. Um, how much of this actually existed in the ancient world? Well, a lot of our sources about jobs and about labor actually comes from very high-status men. So we have to always be a little bit suspicious of what they are telling us in their writings and in the literature that we have from antiquity. But certainly, according to people like Cicero um, and uh, according to people like Juvenal and Marshall, later writers of satire and things like this, that a lot of jobs within the Greek and then the Roman world were seen as... Uh, very low in status because they not only turned a profit from their job, but they also used their hands. Manual labor was seen as degrading, and the gentleman was the man that could stay home uh, owning a large amount of land and do things like engage in politics and write and uh, not so much get his hands dirty. Mm -hmm. So we've got very much this kind of snobbish upper class view of of a man like, like Cicero there who's going to see any kind of activity as being any manual activity as being degrading so for him was the only acceptable form of work basically just owning or managing land that's definitely the uh, the optimal thing to do in order to make money um, is to be a, a property owner. And there was actually um, a, a law from the Roman Republic that said that senators themselves could not gauge in commercial trade. Um, this is generally talking about uh, trade and, and then also um, shipping uh, as well. Uh, but the feeling was that the, the person with the most dignitas, that is to say, the person that was most worthy and, and esteemed within society would simply own property. It was an agricultural society that had been founded on farming and thus all the ideals and and virtues oftentimes uh, rather uh, ideally uh, would be tied back to agriculture. Mm-hmm. So our, our modern ideas of, of the high status of the very successful businessman or, or woman, to use an old-fashioned term, the captains of industry, <laughs> there's no real sense of that in the ancient world. I I think that there's a sense once you get outside of literature that that may have been true, uh, but generally that that seems to have been more of a product of capitalism and of the West. Pulling pulling oneself up from one's bootstraps is something that, at least in the U.S. and uh, in other countries, particularly since the Industrial Revolution, we've really valued Mm -hmm. the person that can come from poverty uh, into being uh, a rich or or rather successful man or woman. Uh, But within Roman antiquity, there was still often Oftentimes, a lot of shame uh, attached to that. So uh, even Cicero is very much uh, protective uh, over the fact that he is a novice homo, Mm -hmm. that he himself has not come from a patrician background. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I think that, that there is a lot of stigma attached to it that he's always trying to protect himself from. But if we look at things like inscriptions and material culture through things like archaeology, we see that perhaps in, in reality there was much more uh, esteem uh, and, and honor attached to these jobs in areas outside the city of Rome, perhaps. Uh, okay, so if we can sort of... We might summarize the attitude you're getting from literature as being less like the present day and more perhaps like some sort of English aristocrats of the 19th or early 20th century being unhappy with the rise of men who've made their money in industry. Um, yes. So if let's move on then outside the city of Rome, outside of this elite literature and, and below that level of people who regard pretty much any um, economic activity as being vulgar. Once you get into inscriptions, once you get into other evidence, what picture starts to emerge? Well, we start to see a lot of the leaders of various provincial towns, particularly in the Greek East, uh, in areas of Asia Minor, that is to say modern-day Turkey and Syria particularly, but also in areas of the West like Gaul and Britain. Um, a lot of the leaders within these local curial councils that run the towns happen to also be tradesmen of some sort. Uh, many of them are still landowners, but the tradesmen are not shut out as much from politics and from engagement within the society. We see a lot of inscriptions for um, athletic competitions and festivals. They have their names put on seats in places like mm -hmm. Aphrodisias, where we can see that they form uh, associations that are kind of like guilds, kind of mm -hmm. like medieval guilds, and uh, they actually have quite a bit of sway and influence, we can tell through their dedications and monuments that they place up within the town, statues. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, a great degree of engagement with the civic identity that doesn't seem as much to hint at these marginal figures that are degraded within society. We have to kind of wonder whether there is a literary world that has been constructed that is very different than the reality that everyday Romans engaged with. And you're thinking primarily of everyday Romans in other cities of, of the empire. Mm -hmm. Do you think these local elites could then ever graduate up to be, to be the imperial elites? Well, it certainly happens that soldiers get their day during mm -hmm. the 3rd and 4th centuries. Certainly there are a lot of opportunities for um, military uh, ascension in the 3rd and then 4th centuries of the later Roman Empire. Uh, there is less so of that when we have the Julio-Claudians and then the Flavians and, and uh, then the Antonine emperors. They seem to come from much higher stock mm -hmm. than we get in the later empire. But if we're talking, uh, if we're, if we're talking about uh, local councils, yes, uh, senatorial status, that still takes an incredible amount of money mm -hmm. uh, to reach the financial line that you have to cross in order to qualify to be a senator. Thank you. Well, if, if we could move on to that to think a bit more then about the, the relative status of other jobs within the ancient world below you know, this, this level of, of the great elite, how well does that map onto our sense of the status of different jobs? Well, there there are a lot of jobs that we don't have today uh, so much. Uh, certainly, uh, slavery has been abolished, mm -hmm. and so we don't uh, have an exact one-to-one -one, uh, all the time, although human trafficking still exists 
within the world. Uh, but for instance, we have a lot of bath workers mm -hmm. uh, that were employed. Bathing was an incredibly important part of Roman society that we don't quite have. Um, another job that, that exists today, but we don't kind of see them as, as regularly, and it's become highly industrialized, are tanners. Mm -hmm. uh, tanners worked with urine and with feces in order to strip animal hides of uh, various hair and skin and to prepare those skins to be turned into leather. Mm -hmm. And they used a lot of large vats of urine mm -hmm. and other kind of uh, rather smelly things <laughs> uh, in order to prepare these skins. They were incredibly important part of the economy because leather um, was there in a time when cotton didn't yet exist. Of course, yes. So we had linen uh, and we had flax mm -hmm. for sure, but leather was a, a very important material to, to make everything from bags to, as Marshall tells us, to raincoats. Okay. So um, tanners were, were uh, probably very involved in local towns like Pompeii uh, and in places uh, like Aphrodisias or later um, in, in small provincial towns in the east. But within cities like Constantinople and Rome, at least according to the literature, they were very, uh, very much degraded by our authors that mm -hmm. tell us about them. So that's why we have to look to the inscriptions to tell us a little bit more about what these people really were doing. Mm -hmm. So you think that some of these people would actually be quite successful and, and not be as marginalised as as they would appear in our literary sources, and that even people who are doing you know what what seems like a you know, rather disgusting job um, much of the time are not actually such outcasts as they might have first appeared. Right, we have a lot of inscriptions for fullers who mm -hmm. are kind of like uh, the dry cleaners of <laughs> antiquity. They like to to clean clothing. Everybody wants a nice toga mm -hmm. uh, to be nice and clean, and and so they too would use urine and order to clean clothing but they are very uh, often oftentimes we can get some very high status fullers not all of them but some of them could ascend to the upper echelons of local society and we see that particularly from the inscriptions and from the graffiti from Pompeii and Herculaneum mm -hmm. that these were very civically minded people that that uh, invested heavily within their local town mm -hmm. so mentioning there you've got quite a range of different fullers but some of them very wealthy and successful some obviously not not reaching those heights is there much of a sense of a real attachment of a status within society to a particular job in the ancient world it just depends. I mean, oftentimes the vocabulary can be very ambiguous. So we might call Rupert Murdoch uh, a, a reporter or a newsman, <laughs> but that's grossly uh, understating what he actually is, mm -hmm. which is to say a magnate, a very wealthy Man, um, so maybe in Petronius we could call Trimalchio. Technically, he's a merchant, right? Yes. But that really doesn't give us a sense of how much money Trimalchio has. Uh, so we have to be very careful when looking at inscriptions or in in texts of what exactly is meant by a job title at all. Sometimes we get a sense of this is the this is the head this or that or this is the arch this or that. You know, mm -hmm. not just uh, say a pantomime, but the arch. <laughs> Um, but but oftentimes we, we don't really know at what level these occupations are, are coming in. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't necessarily expect the, the sort of 
the arch actor, the top actor, to be automatically of a higher social status than, than other actors, for example. Yes, I mean, uh, with the exception of a very small group of actors, all actors and, and most musicians are uh, have the status of infamia, where we get the modern word infamy from. Mm -hmm. um, so, for instance, we think of actors and actresses as being these famous uh, people that we read lots of magazines and blogs mm -hmm. about, but in antiquity, technically, the these are people that are seen as oftentimes sexually deviant, mm -hmm. oftentimes perhaps prostitutes and uh, people of very low legal status, at least, even though they're rather celebrated and people enjoy going to see a good pantomime. Um, they they are still very low status, very different from today. Mm, so obviously there's there's a history as well in, in, in the early modern period as well of the low status, especially of actresses. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't really have that today. So you would say actresses, musicians, these these are the figures who, who might be revered or be superstars nowadays, mm -hmm. but would often be very low down in the pecking order in the Roman world. Definitely. And, and doctors as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that doctors within our society have a, a great amount of esteem and um, at least in America you always have the idea that oh you want your child to be a doctor or a mm. lawyer they want to make the most money don't become an academic <laughs> right but uh, but now we have the sense that there there is a, a great amount of schooling and uh, they get their MDs and they become very wealthy doctors and in in at least the Greek and then Roman period uh, within the Roman world in particular doctors of, are of a much lower status and, and Romans oftentimes have Greek doctors that are their own slaves that serve as kind of medical personnel within their household. Um, so definitely a, a very big status shift between then and now. Mm -hmm. so if I if I can call up a very a very unusual reference, perhaps in the episode of Doctor Who, set in Pompeii, when I hope I'm not giving anything away to anybody, the family is rescued at the end, and, and we see them living safely. A few months later, the son of the family is now going off to train as a doctor, mm -hmm. and this is this is supposed to be the family of Caecilius in in Pompeii. Do you think that actually is a is an anachronistic idea? I think that most Romans would be very upset if they found out that their son uh, was going off to Kos or Knidos <laughs> in order to train at one of the medical schools there. Within the Greek world, it was more esteemed and mm. there was a better medical tradition um, and uh, more respect for that medical tradition. But within Roman families, what you would hope that your son would do would be go uh, perhaps go to Athens, be trained in oratory, mm. uh, learn a lot of literature, and then come back and become a senator, look out over the farms, perhaps one day write an agricultural handbook, <laughs> um, and go along the model of Cincinnatus, perhaps um, engage in military actions and learn that, but largely you want to follow along the cursus honorum. Mm -hmm. And these occupations, these manual labor uh, positions, are not part of the cursus honorum. So for the elite family, the cursus honorum being the round of magistracies that you would hope to take part in in society until perhaps reaching the pinnacle of the consulship. Right, and we don't have a set cursus that we all follow today, but definitely we all decide that we go um, to kind of a primary school and mm -hmm. then perhaps go off to university um, and then uh, go into our job. It's much more set for a Roman male teenager. Once they don their toga virilis <laughs> and, and they become a part of society, they really are expected, if they're part of this um, senatorial elite, to follow a, a certain political path that takes them through um, learning about finance as 
as a queester, uh, which is a financial officer, and then uh, perhaps serving as a preter, which is a judge, mm -hmm. learning all the ropes of civic society, but then ultimately also being a land baron at the same time and, and getting money from that. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. If I could just finish with the two questions that I'm asking all my interviewees about their own personal engagement with the ancient world. The first of which is, if you could go and witness anything from the ancient world, a monument or an, or an event, what would you like to see? I think I would like to see the building of Hadrian's Wall. Mm -hmm. I think I would really like to see how it was done and the ways that it was done and, and just to really see this demarcation of the empire. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I'm not just saying this because this is, I'm speaking to, to a Brit, right? <laughs> I, I really love Hadrian's Wall and I think it would be a wonderful thing to see how it actually functioned, to see the taxes, right? This is a question that I always ask myself mm -hmm. is to what extent is Hadrian's Wall simply being used as a place to collect taxes yep. or is it really a defensive wall right to kind of settle that question for me would be really nice and I like watching things being built yeah. I, I remember once discussing with one of my colleagues whether we could set the exam question was Hadrian's Wall a wall you know, precisely mm -hmm. to ask these questions really what is it for because mm -hmm. so often especially we have in our minds I think we think about Hadrian's Wall the Great Wall of China right and there is this big debate over actually whether it was really any kind of defensive mm -hmm. frontier or as you say much more of a demarcation and perhaps a tax boundary as yes. well yeah. Okay. And my second question then is, if you could change anything in the ancient world, what would it be? And you, you can change something very small, you can change an individual event um, that you know about, or you can change something completely structural about the whole way that some aspect of the ancient world works. Well, what would you like to change? Well... Since I've spent a lot of the week thinking about medicine in particular, I think I would. I wonder how it would completely change society if germ theory were known mm -hmm. within Greco-Roman antiquity. How would it change attitudes? How would it change uh, hospitals? Uh, when would they come about? Um, you know, personnel, attitudes in general. If we had this idea of germ theory. Uh, back in, in, in the ancient world. So do you think it, it would have made a significant difference to, to health care for them and, and indeed to life expectancy? Yes, I, I do think that, that it would have completely transformed how long people lived, the kind of measures that they would have taken, a lot of the attitudes that we see in literature, but I think it would also change the status of individuals that worked with corpses, for mm -hmm. instance, uh, the status of various individual healthcare workers and, and things like this, if it was just better understood exactly how disease spread. Mm. Thank you very much, Sarah, and thank you all for listening. I'm signing off here from the University of Iowa, and I'd like to thank once again my interviewee today, Sarah Bond. Goodbye.